Welcome to the Round Rock Church of Christ Teaching Podcast. We're a faith community located in the central Austin area that gathers at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope this teaching blesses you as we become spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers for those who do not have a home. So we are rounding third base right now in a series that we have called Filled and Led. And if this is your first week with us or uh, you're back in a while, this language actually comes from the journey that we began as a church back in the month of August. I know it's already September. You're ready for the pumpkin spice lattes, but we are still working through a series that has been happening since August. And this is some of the language we've been using for this three-year journey of saying that we want to be Jesus followers who are spirit-filled and spirit-led for those who do not have a home. And the reason this is our journey, I said this last week and I'll say it again, the reason this is our journey is because this was the journey of Jesus. When Jesus exited the waters of baptism, Luke, the same author of Acts, says that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and everything God placed before him, he was filled and led to be able to do. And the invitation of Jesus is to do the things like Jesus and for Jesus. We can ask the Spirit as well to partner with us. So for the first part of this series, we talked about what does it look like as a committed follower of Jesus to ask the Spirit of God in Paul's words in Ephesians 5.18 to continuously fill us. And when we pray that, what we mean is, God, can you deepen me? Can you mature me? Can you stretch me? Can you expand the vision of your kingdom for me? And in the last two weeks of the series that I'm going to start next week, I'm going to unpack the last half of this phrase of the vision. But today, I need to camp out on just one more thing, on what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. Because just like Jesus and the disciples of Jesus, if you participate in God's world, you will be led to pray. You'll be led to pray for things and also for people. And specifically, praying for deliverance. What does it mean to pray for deliverance? Uh, you know, prior to uh, my family moving to uh, Georgetown, um, they were telling me a couple weeks ago that uh, when I was really little, we actually lived out in uh, the Lampasas area, and uh, we went to this small church where uh, one of the things that the, they would do on Sunday nights is they would host a prayer gathering. And what they would do is at the end of the service, they would make some poor soul that did not want to get up in front of people and make them stand up there and take prayer requests and pray for them live in action. I guess this church kind of thought like, you can't mess up prayer, so let's throw Jimmy up there. Um, so, so they would do this, and my parents said that there was uh, one night in particular uh, that was quite entertaining. Uh, someone got up there, and uh, the prayer request came in. And, uh, you know, it was sister so-and-so, and she said, you know, I've got, I've got a biopsy. Uh, that's coming this week, and I need you to pray for that. And uh, this poor man, in his nervousness, bows his head, and he goes, 
Lord God, I pray this week for sister so-and-so and that her autopsy goes well this week. And some poor person, when that man got down, had to say, hey, you did pretty well, except when you prayed for her diagnosis, you actually prayed for her demise, okay? We don't need your prayer services anymore. The question I want to tackle this morning is, is there anyone in this room that you've been nervous to pray about something or for someone? Have you ever been lost of what words to say, or better yet, what words not to say when praying for someone? In essence, the question I want to ask this morning is for spirit-filled people, what do we fill our prayers with when we need God to act, when we need God to deliver? And to do this this morning, we need to turn to the story that Tony just read for us. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to go ahead and grab it and uh, turn it open. Uh, we've been walking through different moments in the book of Acts. And when it comes to what do we pray when we want God to act, when we need God's deliverance in our lives, I want us to focus on this story in Acts 12. And if you've got a pen, maybe there's a couple things I'm going to give you to be able to just write as we go, but we're going to start in verses one through three. Pay close attention to how Luke, the writer of the story, kicks off as he goes. So about that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He put James, brother of John, put him to death with the sword. And when he saw this, he that it was met with approval from the Jews, he proceeded to see seized Peter as well. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to the guards by the four squads of four soldiers each, and Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover was over. So the first theme that I want us to hear, to just know when you're thinking about what do I fill my prayers with? When someone asks for me to pray for them. The first one is this. Spirit-led disciples are okay with not being okay. Spirit-led disciples are okay with not being okay. If you were reading the book of Acts all the way up to chapter 12, you would find in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, God's people are doing all the right things. They're bold they're stretching themselves. They're acting in faith. And in the time you get to chapter 12, even though they are doing everything right, everything is going terribly wrong. I already hear a word from God for us this morning. Have you ever been in a place in life where you're doing everything right and it feels like everything is going wrong? You're showing up before God and things are going wrong. You're trying to do the best with your family and things are still going wrong. We're investing in that family member that is difficult and things are still going wrong. 
And it's natural. When things start to go wrong in life, it is so natural to start telling yourself a story that you've done something wrong. Or maybe something is wrong with God. Or maybe God is trying to wrong you because of something wrong that you've done. And Luke just assures you in the beginning of chapter 12 that sometimes you're not doing anything wrong. Sometimes doing what is right, wrong things still happen. This is the story of God's deliverance. Luke admits in the beginning of chapter 12 that things are not okay. And that's still okay. You know, I, I've come to the hypothesis that I think if Luke had movies in his life, I think Luke would be a movie buff, okay? I think he would love movies. He would be that type of person who watches movies and he'd be like, mm, I know what's coming. He'd be that type of, type of person that would be like, ooh, I see the extra meaning that's happening behind there. If you've ever watched movies with someone who they just know, like they just know, they just see things that you're like, I've never seen things like that before. You love watching movies with those people because they see details the rest of us don't see. Now, you know, I love watching with people. I don't love watching with people who they want to ask questions every time something's about to happen, especially the person that's like, oh, Oh, Zane, what's behind that door? I don't know. Let's watch the movie so we can know what's behind the door. Run away from those people. But you want to run towards people like Luke. You know, over the years, I've had people point out meanings in movies that I was like, wow, I just, I just didn't even see that. You know, a couple examples. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay, like classic. I never, ever knew that actually within one of those scenes, the same person that directed Indiana Jones also directing Star Wars, has a small Easter egg of R2-D2 in the middle of it. I didn't catch the first time I watched Tron that there's actually a reference to Pac-Man in the movie Tron. Toy Story 3, which leaves me in puddles every time I watch it, I didn't know there was a dedication to Sid in the midst of the movie. I didn't even know that in The Godfather, when there's oranges around, that means you're a goner. It's about to be over. I need people to help point those things out to me. Luke is your guide in pointing the meaning behind the story. I've talked about this week after week after week. Luke is layering these stories over and over again. If you have a pen, I want you to just mark a couple of these places where Luke is being like, hey, mm -mm, this is the same story. Same story of God's deliverance over and over and over again. First place, it's literally in verse one. He can't get out of the first verse without actually having multiple references that he laid violent hands on him. When Luke, the same writer, describes Jesus' arrest, he literally uses the same phrase. They wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour. Same story of deliverance. God's people in the story of Exodus, when Yahweh is delivering them, the descriptor of laying violent hands on them is used over and over. It's like Luke's way of being like, it's the same story of deliverance. In the next verse, in uh, verse 2, uh, you've got this reference to John. And you've got this reference of King Herod. It reminds you that in Jesus' story, there was literally a man by the name of John the Baptist 
who by the sword was taken down by a different ruler by the name of Herod. And even when you get to verse 3, he's letting you know that this is in the festival of unleavened bread. In other words, this is a season in which God's people would be celebrating the deliverance that God has given. Luke, in three verses, is trying to say to you, this is the same story of deliverance over and over again. And sometimes when you're in the midst of deliverance, you will experience trouble first. This is one of the reasons we should love the scriptures. Because they absolutely tell us the story of our lives before we were even a sparkle in our parents' eye. They tell us the story of what is going on. And part of living in God's delivering story is even though that you live in the name of Jesus with liberation and celebration, you will sometimes still languish in bondage. Peter knows this experience. And it's okay. It's okay to name it. You know, sometimes when we find ourselves in a place of bondage or a dark place, we start to reach for two levers. We start to think, is the existence of God real? Or we reach for the lever of maybe God is not actually good or maybe God is not actually kind because God doesn't promise these things. And I want to gently remind us, even though we've never put it on a coffee mug, Jesus does promise us in John 16, verse 33. He literally says, hey, in this life, you are going to have trouble. My bottom line that I'm trying to say is that if you are a believer in God, if you have said yes to God's delivering story, you have permission to still have bad days, bad weeks, bad months, bad seasons. Being filled with the Spirit does not mean that you are filled with this annoying optimism every single where, place you go. You may be filled with hope, but you don't have to pretend like everything is okay. Have you ever met a Christian that never has a bad day? Like that works really well until you go through a really rough season in your life. You're like, hey, just level with me for a second. You see what's going on out there? It's a pretty rough world. Ellen Davis, who is this expert on the Psalms, she has this line that I just think is so good. She says, the Psalms, the songs and prayers of the Bible, they are the first amendment to God's people. It gives God's people the right of free speech before God. And we should keep in mind that nearly two-thirds of the songs and prayers in the Bible are with tears in their eyes and frustration in their voice. When things are not okay, we don't need to turn away from God. We can turn towards God. And that's exactly what the church does in Acts 12. They turn towards God. And I want us to catch this because this kind of has the second point for us. Spirit-led disciples pray for God to make things possible. You know, if you look with me in Acts 12, verse 4, um, Luke's trying to overdo it on you. He's laying it thick. Okay, he literally describes 
When he's talking about, you know, after arresting him, they put him in prison, you know, yada, yada, yada. And there were four squads of four soldiers all in that area that was arresting them. And then verse 6, he said, the night before Herod bring him out to trial, there were two soldiers with two chains that stood with guards at the entrance. This is Luke's way of being like, hey, it's overdone. There's no way Peter is getting out. In other words, you could say it's Luke's way of saying it's going to take the action of God. It's going to take the intervention of God for something to happen. In the midst of one impossibility and another impossibility, the church in verse 5, what are they doing? They're earnestly praying for Peter to make it possible. And if that isn't crazy enough, Luke actually tells you that God responds to the prayer. And the best part is even in the description. If you want to follow with me in uh, Acts 12, verse 10. Um, so uh, this angel comes to Peter, and then uh, they pass through uh, the first and the second guards. They came out of the iron gate of the city. Uh, it opened by itself. They went through it. They'd walked through the length of the strength, and then the angel left him. Verse 11, then Peter came to himself, and he said, you know what? Without a doubt, the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the clutches of Herod. In verse 12, when this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocks on the door. A servant comes to answer the door, recognizes it's Peter's voice, and she doesn't open the door. She runs back to be like, Peter is freed. In verse 15, the church says, you're out of your mind. They're praying for Peter. And literally, when they hear Peter's delivered, they're like, no, 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 no. That can't actually happen. We're just praying this thing. God isn't actually going to respond to this. The, pray, the church prays prayers that the rest of the world says, you got to be out of your mind. Are you praying any prayers? Where if someone heard them, they were like, you got to be out of your mind. Or do you not touch those prayers? You know, you got to love Luke. He's at least honest. He's honest that God's people pray bold prayers, but deep inside their minds are like, God's not actually going to do any of that. You know, I... Uh, I occasionally, after service, uh, I field uh, questions uh, about the songs that we sing. And uh, one of my favorite ones was uh, someone came up to me, and uh, we sing this song occasionally that's called uh, This Is A Move. And uh, there's a lot of different lines in that song, and you know, one of them's like, mountains still being moved, and uh, giants are still being slain. And one, uh, one member comes up to me and goes, Zane, I've got a theological question. And with just straightest face ever, he just goes, what did those giants do to us that required them to be slain? What was required of that? That's a joking one. But then I also have people that walk up to me that are very serious. I know some of you thought of it this morning when we sang that song, Waymaker. Some of you have actually come up to me and you've said, hmm, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper. Lie in the darkness. Do we believe that? Some days it's hard to believe that. 
Some people tell me I want to believe that, but because of the darkness I've seen in the world, I'm not sure I can believe that. And I just want to say I love that heart because I get it. I've had seasons in my life where I've gone through theological doubt where I don't want to pray those prayers or sing those songs because in the deepest part of my heart, I do not want to sow disappointment or doubt if God does not answer in the way that I hope. You know, C.S. Lewis, great writer, before he ever became a Christian, wrestled with the idea of in a material, realistic world, trying to reconcile that world with also the world that he sees in the Bible. And C.S. Lewis actually said, I'm not sure that I can see the things that are happening in the Bible actually happening in the real world that I exist in. And he changed his mind one night simply because he walked with a friend by the name of Tolkien who literally said to him, hey, you can reconcile these two worlds because if the intervention of God in Jesus Christ is real, if the resurrection of Jesus is real, then you can trust a God who breaks into the world that is active and sometimes actually is influenced by prayer and changes things. And it changed the imagination of C.S. Lewis. Some of you have greatly benefited from his books and his movies because he remembered that God in Jesus Christ stepped into time and history and intervened for humanity. Which one of my favorite authors, he just says this, he's like, look, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, if we have victory, at least everything's got to be on the table. He's saying, I'm not saying every prayer is going to be answered the way that we think, but we got to be able to just say, it's possible. It's possible for God to make something happen even when it feels impossible for us. We should never say the word never when it comes to the power of God. We should never say never when it comes to generational sin, when it comes to illness, when it comes to addiction. God may sometimes break those chains free. It's what people of victory pray for. And all in the midst of praying for that, we don't pretend to know the mysteries of God, of why sometimes God will answer some prayers and other times God doesn't answer. And we don't assume just because we pray something that God will answer the way we hope. But sometimes I think we also need to be reminded of walking through the pages of Scripture that when people ask for prayer from Jesus, they weren't just asking for like, can I have some inner peace? Can I, just, can I just have some inner peace? Can I just feel a little bit better? Sometimes that happens. But sometimes when the disciples prayed, sometimes when Jesus prayed, things changed. God was influenced. Healing happened. I guess the bottom line that I'm trying to say is that it is okay when praying for people to pray bold prayers. Because our faith doesn't depend on answered prayers, but on something very different. You know, I remember one time I was uh, praying with my mentor, 
who we'd been together a lot of years. Let me, let me put that asterisk next to the story. And uh, we got done praying and I said, amen. And he goes, what was that? I was like, that was a prayer. And he goes, no. I said, no, that wasn't a prayer. He goes, technically that was a prayer. He goes, Zane, that was so vague. I can't even tell you if God would actually answer that prayer or not. He's like, how about some specificity? Let's pray in ways that we know if God is answering. And I was like, thank you for judging my prayers. But it was helpful. It was helpful to have someone remind me that like, hey, it's okay to pray specifically by name, to pray bold things. And it's okay if God does not answer in that way, because our faith doesn't rest on that. And that's the final point I want to bring us to this morning. A spirit-led disciple's faith doesn't rest on intervention, but on the incarnation of Jesus. You know, it's really interesting how Luke tells the story with Peter of experiencing. All the way in verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, wild, and a light shone in the darkness of the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up, quick, get up, he said. Chains fell off of his wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and the sandals. Don't forget those shoes. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him, I mean, Peter followed him out of the prison. And he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was just seeing a vision. Can you imagine Froggy Peter trying to wake up? He's like, why am I doing all these things again? I think this is just vision. I don't think this is real. Peter doesn't think deliverance is actually happening. And the Lord tells him to do all these pointless things, or at least they seem pointless to him. And what he's actually doing is he's preparing him for freedom. You know, sometimes it's not till the end that we realize and experience God's deliverance. You know, this is a word for us that pray for God's deliverance and we don't get the outcome that we want. I think the tension's even in the passage. It's literally in the text. James dies. He's martyred. The prayers are not answered. And then you got Peter who's saved. Why in the world does God answer one way there and another way in that? And we should be very cautious towards anyone that's going to try and explain the mysteries of how God answers prayers or doesn't answer prayers. Sometimes God's deliverance is evident in the moment, and sometimes God's deliverance happens at the end of our stories. And that's okay because our faith was never chained to miracles or God's intervention or response to prayers. It's tied to the miracle that is Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered when you walk through the gospel stories that like, even the people Jesus healed still got sick and passed away? I remember I nearly fell out of my chair in school when people told me that the story of Lazarus, some scholars actually think Lazarus only lived for like a week or two afterwards. <gasps> what? This man that Jesus raised, he may have only lived a little bit longer right after. I was like, what a scam. What a scam. But that's the thing about God responding to prayer though, right? It's never about the, the miracle or the response. When God graces 
somebody's life, it's a sign. It's a pointing in the present of what will be the truest reality in God's preferred future. In essence, what I'm trying to say is we're not to live this life on the earth collecting signs and amazing responses to prayer. Praise God if those things happen. But what we look for is small glimpses and moments that remind us that God's deliverance is on the way. That the greatest thing we can have in this life is not just an answer to prayer, but actually knowing the answerer to all of our prayers that we experience in life. That we're people that we have faith that God will do big things, but also if God chooses not to do those things, we will be faithful to him in the midst of it. Why? Because we have the one who is the greatest answer to all of our questions. We have the one whose scripture says he is the greater Moses. He will part the gates, part the seas. Not even the gates of hell will hold him back. We have the one who's gone before us. We have the one who is the great deliverer. We have the one who holds us and promises one day, even if he doesn't heal us right now, will heal us forevermore. Amen. So God, uh, we recognize there are parts of our lives where darkness reigns, bondage is there, powers and principalities are at work. And God, we just want to confess those things are not okay. God, some of us, we just need to be honest in the room that we're not okay. God, we pray, can you do great things? God, we pray, it, it's all possible in your name. If it's your will, will you free us from those things? And Lord, no matter what the outcome, can you help us to know you as our living hope? As the one we hold on to. And things get really hard. And can you remind us of the light that has came, is coming, and will come again? I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.